Welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by the legend Steve Monaghetti. The word legend gets thrown around a lot amongst Australians to the point where one of my mates called his dog a legend the other day just because he learned how to sit. But Mona is a legend in the true sense of the word, a proper legend. Mona has arguably the most storied career in Australian distance running, running in, in general to be honest, and I can't wait to chat about the training that made it happen. And hopefully in true Mona fashion get some great stories along the way. Mona, thanks so much for joining me, mate. No worries, Jack. Good to be on. Hey, uh, I sort of wanted to start this by um, by just like re- recounting a story that I that I that, that sort of in my head paints the person you are. Um, and it, it was when I was going for a run with you one. I think it was a Monday night around around Lake Wendere. I think we were doing like a typical Monday night loop. And um, you were telling me the story about how you got picked for your first Com Games and how you weren't really expecting it and you weren't training for it, but, but it, it was what it was. And, and I sort of asked, well, was it a good thing? Like, did you, did, did you have no pressure because you re- weren't really there to win and, and you were sort of just picked last minute type thing? And you said, you just turned to me and you said, Jack, if I'm on the start line, I'm there to win. And, um, and then I remember telling that story, story to Julian Spence, who was our last guest, and he just said, yeah, that's that's the real Mona. Um, can you sort of take us into into that time of your life and, and what your mindset was when it came to your running? Yeah, thanks, Jack. Um, I think you know people. You know, I, I, I'm very fortunate to have been able to to make a career out of running, but I never anticipated that that would be the case. But I, I've always been very competitive, and you know, I played a bit of team sports when I was a kid, and I probably wasn't expected to be. A distance runner because there's no history in my family or and there still isn't to be honest you know my cousins uncles aunties no no monogetti um heritage in in distance running so there's never any pressure or expectation and that's been fortunate i think to some degree so you know i'd come home from winning a ballarat race and my mum and dad would go oh you know you're happy with how you ran and i said oh yeah actually I am. And they said, well, did you, did you go? Okay. And I said, yeah, I won. And they go, oh, good. They didn't care. And then I sort of progressed to, you know, Victorian and Australian titles. And it was always, you know, they were happy with what I did, but I was always very tough on myself. So I would, and I still to this day, Jack, I actually run against myself as much as against anybody else. And people will say, well, you know, and I think a perfect example of that is, you know, my best ever run was when I finished third at the World Championships in Athens in 1997. Now, I didn't even win that race. And I won, you know, 99% of the races I probably ran in, in over my career. But that's my best ever run and I finished third. But what I did do on that day was things all came together and I, I ran, you know, it was hard. I was pretty old. I was 35. So I was sort of at the end of my career. It was quite a hilly course. I was kind of, I dropped off the lead pack and I came through or, and hung on and started sort of um, um, you know, instilling my, um, my that competitive nature through the middle and got over to the, you know, there's a sort of a, a ridge as you come into Athens and I got to the top of the hill in a really strong position and rolled on home. And you know, I finished a minute behind a couple of Spaniards who were one and two in the world and I was third. And for me, that was just the perfect race. You know, I toughed it out. It was tough conditions. So that's kind of me. I run against myself in the event. And, you know, you pick a good example of um, Com Games where I wasn't expected. You know, I've never been great on the track. I'm a cross-country runner most primarily, which might surprise people. And then second, 
you know, road runner, but, and the track, you know, I, I even hated training at the track. I'd train at the track every Thursday night and I never liked it, let alone going to the Commonwealth Games on the track. <laughs> but when I did get the opportunity, obviously, I, you know, I made every post a winner and I finished fifth in the 10K. People remember that I, you know, ran my first marathon there and won a bronze medal, but I actually finished fifth in the 10K, which is still pretty good. And, and I ran close to the qualifying time. The qualifying time was 28, 26 to get in that team, Jack. And I, in in the uh, final of the Commonwealth Games, I ran 28 minutes and 28 seconds, I think. So for me, that's a good sign because I was really close to the qualifying time and, and that justified my selection. So I've always been a person who, you know, wants to do better in the situation that they're in. You know, I'd, I'd, you and I'd run together, Jack, and, you know, you'd beat me in the Ballarat race and we'd be first and second. And then we'd go to the Vic race and I'd beat you, you'd finish ninth and I'd finish seventh. That was kind of how I always worked. So the higher level the competition got, the higher up I seemed to finish, not because I was just training or running harder, it was just that my mindset was I wanted to be competitive in whatever race I was. And and I do I do honestly tell the story that I never stood on the start line thinking I couldn't win a race until when I'd retired, I still turned up at a few major races. And there was one person on the start line who I thought, actually, I don't think I can beat you. And that was Craig Mottram. He was at the peak of his powers. And I have to admit, He's one guy that I was on the start line and thinking, oh, actually, I don't think I'm going to win today because I think you're better than me. But I was, you know, the twilight of my career and I would have loved to have, I don't know, ran a, a 10K, not a 5K because he'd smashed me, but maybe a 10K or, a, you know, an 8K cross-country race where Craig was in good shape and I was going, well, it would have been a great event to watch. Where do you think it comes from, Mona? What? Because I know that to be true, that, that you you are just a – you're, a, you're one of the nicest, you know, guys you'll ever meet, but deep down you are a hard bastard. Like just, you don't accept, you don't, you don't set standards for yourself and then, and then not meet them. You just, you, you have this real determination and grit that, that you don't really see in many people. What makes you like that? It, it, that and that's very perceptive because that's exactly how I am. I'm very stubborn on, I am, I'm really, um, I'm not a perfectionist, but I, I really work hard to do something. I've got a really strong work ethic. You know, I reckon that comes from my mum and dad. And I'm, ne- I'm never sure. I'm kind of, mum and dad are still alive. Just dad's 95 and mum's um, 90 and they're battling a bit with, with health, obviously, when you get to that age. But that they both grew up, so they came through the depression in the 1920s and 30s. And then, you know, they were out working at a young age. They never had any money. Dad was a garbage truck driver. And yet they just, they sort of did everything they could for we four children. And I think that sort of strong stubbornness and determination, because you had to be tough then, you just to survive. I mean, my mum is one of 10 kids. They lived in a house about as big as the office that I'm talking to you, um, everyone on right now. They had 10 kids in there, mate. It was unbelievable how tough they had it. So I think I probably inherited a bit of that. And you know, I like to think I'm a pretty genuine, honest, friendly guy, but I certainly have that capacity to make sure that if I do something, I do it to the best of my ability. And, you know, that comes out in, in my running and racing. And, and it's a great, you know, you talk about, this is why we're on here, Jack, about how they train. You know, I, I said, I used to say this to people, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I, I say it, I would actually love if we didn't have to train and we just turned up and raced because I love racing. 
I train because I want to maximize my performance in the next race. And that's exactly how I work. So all, you know, the coaching I do, my own training, the conversations I had with Chris Wardlaw, Tony Benson, my only coaches I've ever had, were, okay, what is this doing to allow me to race better in this next race that's next week, next month, next year? And that's how I, I revolve my whole training purpose. I don't train, I mean, I love running, but I don't train just for the fitness and for the fun of running. I train just so that I can optimize my race performance at the next event. It's really funny you say that because I'd always wondered this about you. So for, for people who don't know, I live in the same town as Mona, Ballarat, which is where Mona's sort of um, been his whole life and and is the unofficial, I wouldn't even just say mayor, like king of Ballarat. Um, everyone knows Mona and, and everyone has a story about Mona and it, it's hard to go a week without hearing Mona's name around here. Um, but one thing you were always known for is that everyone would just see you running. Like there's, I, I would say there's a hundred loops and everyone has a story about seeing, you know, Mona run on that loop. Like there's not a loop in Ballarat that, that isn't somehow associated with your name. So I'd always wondered whether you ran, because you were known for running a lot, like very high volume. And, and I guess I always assumed that you just loved running and that racing maybe was a side effect of your love for, for just getting out and running every day. But, but hearing you say that, it maybe sounds like that wasn't so much the case and, and that you did that just because you actually loved racing. Um, so could you maybe like talk to me a little bit about what your training did look like um, when, when you were sort out your peak? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I, I built up, I, I didn't have a lot of injuries even as a youngster, but I wasn't a high mileage person, Tony Benson, you know, through my teenage years, in early 20s, I was, you know, kind of, I don't even know what mileage I was probably running. I don't know if I would have been running 100 Ks a week, probably at, you know, at 20, 1920. And um, then I started, I swapped coaches at in 1983. So what was it, 21? I think I'd just come back from a World Cross Country trial where I didn't run very well. And I swapped coaches from Tony Benson to Chris Wardlaw. And what happened was he got me on um, doing a bit more mileage, but he got me more focused on the track. So, he actually thought I probably would have run marathons a little bit earlier, but he said, no, look, we need to get you quicker. So I came back on, um, on getting back on the track, but I still was do was increasing my mileage. And, um, so I got up to at my peak. So not, not straight away. So when Chris started coaching me, I was probably doing that sort of hundred and, 110, 120 cases. And he wanted to sort of get me up more to 130, 140. And, Eventually got up to that magical number. I used to work in miles. Jack, I'm that old. I remember when miles was miles, mileage was miles. And I used to think, God, if I could ever get to 100 miles a week, wow, wouldn't that be fantastic? So, and I did. I got to 160K. But then once I sort of established myself as a marathon runner, so I came back from Commonwealth Games in 86, and we started then focusing on specifically becoming, you know, a half marathon marathon runner. And we started bumping my mileage up even further. And I got out to, I mean, my highest week ever. I remember, um, and Rod DeHyden and Troopy and, and a few other people will recount this story that we're up at, um, up in Townsville at a training camp before, I think it was the 96, 1996 Olympics. And um, we ran 233K that week, a few of us. So it was a massive week. But I would regularly be doing 200K a week, twice a day, every day of the week. And, um, you know, that's kind of what you have to do. And I still sort of, I, I have trouble. Now I'm coaching. I have trouble allowing people 
to think that they're prepared for a marathon properly if they're not doing sort of 130, 140k a week because it's 42k in one day, Jack. So if you can't do three or four times that distance over a week, I think you're kidding yourself. So for me, it was all about volume, that 200k's a week. So effectively, I was probably running 180 to 200k's a week. You know, I can't say I was running 200 every week, but on a week where I didn't have a race, I wasn't leading into a race or recovering from a race and everything was just training, I would be doing definitely between 180 and 200 Ks a week and quality though. So Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, lock in hard sessions. And and they were really fast sessions, not long, hard sessions like people do now, Jack, but more uh, quality. So, you know, lap of the lake, fart lick around the lake in, you know, running 6K in, in 18 minutes, so three-minute Ks average. That's with floats. That's with recovery. So I don't know what I was doing the reps, but I'm pretty quick. So it was the, the philosophy that I train under and still employ today is you do enough base mileage to get tired, then you do these sparks of fast running in those sessions to keep your fast twitch fibers working, and you get used to running fast off that tiredness, and that's basically the philosophy that I used throughout my training career. There's like a heap of, I have so many questions I want to ask about this. Um, <laughs> I guess like a big thing um, I want to ask about because I know the places you trained is that Ballarat is, it's a funny place for, for distance running because it, it's almost perfect. Like we're surrounded by bush, um, endless amounts of like forest that are super hilly. And I know for a fact that pretty much every run you did was was through the hills. So like it was it was a time before GPA, well, GPS watches, but you would have been like doing, you know, I would say oh, at, at least 1,500 to 2,000 metres elevation probably every week along with running 200K. Like they weren't easy Ks, were they? You weren't just running around Albert Park Lake in Melbourne. No, that's true. And, you know, we, we talk about it now. You know, I still run in the forests around Ballarat. And, you know, if you're doing it, you know, I was running 35K in, in those forests, so mainly out the Creswick State Forest or over in Woolwarook, Woolwarunga Rook, as it's called now, I think, um, Canadian forest as we knew it back then. And they are rolling hills. And we would run now, we're still running sort of 445s. But if I happened to come down on the lake and finish my run with a lap of the lake, I'd be running for 15s, 420s. So I'm absolutely certain that the 445s in the forest are equivalent to sub 430s on the flat. But the other benefit that you get is you get the, you know, the strength in your quads and your legs from having to work over the hills. So, and even the downhill, you know, I think we underestimate the benefit of running downhill. So rolling up a hill, you know, you're working your quads, but also rolling the downhill, you know, teaches you a certain rhythm about running downhill and you're using different muscles and it's all part of the specificity of distance running that you need to do. And, you know, I always think that if we did have a hilly course, there's no doubt that I had a benefit over people in Melbourne or other parts of the country who were only training on flat. And they were running faster in their training, but they weren't getting the strength benefit. So I'd always be tough on hills. You know, give me... Bundura, the 12K Bundura, you know, I was pretty tough to beat there because I think the only person that ever beat me there was Mal Norwood and he was, he was a country boy as well. So, you know, I think that says volumes for how important the hills were around Ballarat. But you picked it really well. I think Ballarat's the ideal city in the world for distance running because we also have the flat Lake Wendouree, which is sort of gravel and bitumen, a mixture of gravel and bitumen. But we can run faster out there. And I've seen Collis Birmingham run 
you know, low 240 Ks around there. So, and it's continuous. So you can go round and round on the flat for as long as you like. You can do, you can do 500 Ks if you want to around there. There's no reason that you need to stop. So, and then such a, a variety of trails that, and I'm not sure if people would know, but out of that 200 Ks that I ran per week, I only drove to one out of the 14 sessions, and that was the hill course out at the top of Shire Avenue, Tony Benson's hill course. Oh. I drive out there on a Saturday morning. Every other run I did from my front door. So how good is that? And it was variety. It wasn't running the same loop all the time. You know, out of those other 13 runs, I reckon about 10 of them were on different loops and different courses. But to be able to run those from home, that's unheard of in the world of distance running. I um I just lit- like literally got flashbacks and uh, you know I've had nightmares about Tony Benson's hill course. A lot of people actually <laughs> call that like the Mona Hill course. Did you know that? Oh uh, yeah, no, 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 you know that's that's disrespectful to Tony because he lived on Shire Avenue and used it a lot. He you know he introduced me to that hill course and um, we've 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 um, refined it a bit, but it's a bit overgrown now. And people, I can honestly say people don't go out there now, Jack. Because it's too hard. It's too hard, and yeah. it's as much the it's too hard. The downhill's pretty hard, pretty brutal on your legs, but didn't do me too much damage. You know, it helped me. And you know, I, I yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna criticise the current training methods, but I think we've gone a little bit too. I really like that we're doing this marathon simulation. That a lot of the long running now includes this fast work because you know, marathon you're running 42k at for me just over three minute K. So to simulate a bit of that's good, but that wasn't the way I did it. And I think, you know, people miss the value of, of doing hills and really tough training. And, you know, 200 Ks a week's not easy, Jack. 200 Ks a week in Ballarat, over the hills, in the forest for 50% of your running, that's bloody hard. It's damn tough. And, I, you know, I tell that story about going down the track and, when I went to Lamberis, the track wasn't. It was rubberized bitumen with no rubber. There were boom gates in lane. You know, you had to run out in lane three. Had to run around these boom gates. There was no lights. It was dark. It was howling gale. It was hail. It was torrential rain. Yet I was up there doing my eight four hundreds. Around I'd go. And I tell you what, that did. When I got in down to Olympic Park or somewhere Oslo, you know, where the track was fantastic you just grow an extra leg because you're thinking, how easy is this compared to training on Lambera? So I reckon training hard and, you know, in tough environments, it just toughens you up. And I reckon there's some real value in that. And I reckon we've gone away from that a bit too much. Yeah, I love hearing that. There's my lecture for the day. No, nah, I'm going to I'm gonna try and make you unpack that a little bit more in a second because I'm just like, <laughs> you're one of those guys and this is what I always walk away from from talking to you thinking is like, I wish I could have asked him more questions because every story you tell, you know, I'm thinking in my head, oh, I've got five questions I want to ask from that and it's impossible to ask them all. But going back to the the Tony Benson's Hill course, I um, I tried to show a guy who's not from Ballarat that course the other day and be like, this is this is why Ballarat runners are tough. And it's so overgrown. Like you literally can't even run parts of it anymore because it's so overgrown. And, uh, and I had that moment where I'm like, geez, maybe we are, we are getting soft. Like <laughs> that would never happen around the lake, would it? No, exactly. I feel like going out and, you know, cutting a bit of a path through it. I don't want to destroy the, the, the nature of some, um, you know, be, be criticized for cutting down um, bushes and stuff. But um, where we ran was a pretty special area. And, I do think, you know, we need to get back to being able to have that runnable because it's important that we also remember the tradition. I think, 
you know, we've lost a bit of tradition and, you know, we're in a COVID environment and there's different things happening in the world, but tradition of Australian distance running is really important. And I think we just need to make sure that we acknowledge that. And, yes. um, you know, by, by chatting to me about my training and stuff, that's historically, that's one way of doing it, but it's also paying homage to um, the courses that we read. I remember, I, I love the story of, um, I think it was Chris Wardlaw's training pack and not sure what run it was, but they had a run where they'd go, they'd run around this oval and they'd always go to this sort of far corner and run this little sort of extra bit on this corner. And they'd do this, you know, for 12 months and the young people who turned up, the newbies had sort of just do it because they, it was just what you did. And anyway, some, some little smart ass said, um, Oh, how can we go? What, why do we do that extra little bit on the end there? And they've all sort of stopped almost on the spot and turned around and sacrilege. How could you ask that? That's where there was a tree there 20 years ago. And we used to always run around that tree. And just because they cut the tree down and removed it, we've still got to go around there. So that's the sort of tradition I like. Yeah, I love that too. Um, I actually have a funny story about this that, that you've made me think of. Um, so our, I, I had Julian Spence on, on the last episode of the podcast, Mona, and um, uh, when he first moved to Ballarat, he was a soft Geelong runner at the time. So he did all of his <laughs> runs, you know, around the river and Agreed. shirts off running just so that the people looked at him. Um, and he got to Ballarat and he sort of recounted how he would have conversations with you and realized, oh, like, I'm not setting a standard high enough for myself. Um, and and conversations with you made him realize that 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 he had more to give and he had to expect more of himself. And one of, one of my like early memories with Jules is I went for a, a run. I think it was with him and, and his partner at the time, Bree. And um, he, he was really proud of himself. He'd made this hilly tempo course in Ballarat. And obviously where he's, he's from in Geelong is very flat and he's come out to the hills and, and this hill course he, he made was, it was barely hilly. It was around the Gong Gong Reservoir Mono. I'm not sure if you were, you remember the course he uh, made. And, and I said to him, I said, i about that. Don't worry. You do yours first. All right. All right. I said, I said, uh, it's just not very hilly though, is it Jules? Like it was, it was a hilly, like it had, it had two hills in it and they weren't very long or hard, but it had a, like a real long downhill and you could run fast on it. I said, it's just more like a, like a nice little gentle tempo loop. And he's like, oh fuck. Mona said the exact same thing to me. Mona said, <laughs> Mona said it needs five times the amount of hills it has. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and that's exactly right, Jack. I, t- I remember going out there. I, I think I was injured as I have a bit at the moment. And I was sort of just jogging around in between. And, and I missed, they started and, and the, the sort of a loop that they were doing. And I think I'd do two or three laps. And, and I went to the obvious place because I'd missed them. So I went to the obvious place where there's this, this dipper that's a fantastic hill. If you were doing, if you're putting a hill course out where they, where Julian had decided to put it, Jack, you would obviously include this hill. That's the only reason that I could see that you would go out there to do a hill course. So I'm, I, I know I'm, the hill, yep. I'm standing there waiting. And anyway, after about 10 minutes, I'm sensing they're not coming past this hill. So anyway, I ran off. <laughs> somewhere else and um and i found him and i said oh well you know did you miss the course you made a mistake you missed that you know the the one hill and i said no no that's not part of the course i said mate you are kidding me that's not a hill course without that hill that's the one you do put in there oh you can't call that a hill course so agreed totally soft that that julian spence Agreed. Yep. Um, that's a that's a funny story though. I think he. Um, I think <laughs> we're joking, think, obviously, Jules. We know him well. We can we can we can have a get stuck into him. I'm sure. 
Yeah, yeah. I've already there was already enough lovey dovey stuff in the podcast with Jules. I don't need I any bet. more of that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't need to add any more. We don't need any more of that. Hey, um, it it sort of um. I think it would be sort of remiss of me to not go back and talk about your your comments about the current sort of um, meta of Australian distance running and the training that's employed now because it is very different to what you what you used to do in the day and what you still believe in. Um, could we maybe go like a little bit deeper in that? Do you, do you think is because there wouldn't be like probably a single person in Australia who runs as much as you did back when you were you know, our best marathon runner. Um, do you think if you could change, like would you blend your way and the current way together or would you scrap the current way full stop and go fully back to how um, you were doing it if you were the coach of of all of our, you know, say our, our top 10 marathoners in the country? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And you know, I think Liam Adams is probably one who still sort of gives, gives a bit of um, – time to train our way and it's worked out pretty well for him i've got to say but he's tough he's really tough i love i love liam because he's he's hard he's hard nose um so i think he's one example of you know they probably melded the both together but you know i'm back coaching one one advantage of covid was I, i've had a bit more time and the last um, couple of years I've, I've got back into serious coaching again and i've had to compromise my training methods because you know if i if i told them what I thought they should do, they would have no life and they would be training unbelievably hard. But unfortunately, life moves on, Jack, and it's difficult now to commit the time because when, you know, I'm, I, it sounds like I'm talking the dark ages, but back in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, it was a bit easier to, you know, to, to set time aside. We weren't as busy. We weren't as rushed. Life wasn't progressing as quickly. So, you know, we could spend a couple of hours a night. You know, I, I ran with a lot of school teachers and he and she's, we'd run with and we just sort of, I'd meet them after school and off we'd go for a run in different places around Ballarat. And we had a bit of time. We weren't in a rush. Whereas now I'm finding life's got in the road for a lot of people. So for people to commit sort of 70, 80K a week and want to run a marathon off the back of that, the only way you can do that off that mileage is to do, you know, to compromise my methods and to do this faster running combined with longer running, which I don't like. It's got to be honest. We've always separated that. A long run's a long run, slow, you know, LSD, my drug of choice, long, slow distance. And, um, <laughs> you know, I think with, you know, that's how we used to do it. We would never mix a long run with quality, but I understand now that life's moved on and for people to be able to be in the best shape they can possibly be in to run a marathon, I need to compromise my training. I'm actually calling myself a distance coach because I think the training that I'm now melding together makes you the best distance runner, you know, 5K, 10K on the track, half marathon. Whether it stretches out to the marathon, I'm not completely convinced. I'm happy for people to get in my ear, Moose, get in my ear, you guys to get in my ear and tell me that, you know, for the marathon, I need to have some more specific training, then I would be happy to uh, incorporate that into my training method. So I am compromising a bit, but I haven't, you know, I'm not convinced about it at the distance running level just yet. And so, like, I guess if you could go back, would you still just do everything the exact same in your career or, or now that you've seen sort of... I guess the Australian modern way. Would you would you incorporate any of it into your program? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I find it very difficult to change anything that I did because, mate, I was I was a, a little kid from Ballarat who did a little bit of running as a teenager. I ran, you know, eight minutes, 1325, 2747, 6006 and 20816. Mate, I was never going to run any better than that. If I did any, if you could take me to the moon, I couldn't run any faster than all of those. So I'm absolutely so proud of my racing performances. And the fact, you, the other thing that people probably may not know, Jack, is I started in 22 marathons for Australia or for my country or for me, city marathons or, or uh, international events, I should say, so not uh, not always for Australia. But out of those 22, I finished in 11th place or higher in 20 of them. Yeah. One of them was the Barcelona Olympics where I finished 48th and it's probably sort of the, the one bad run in my marathon career. The other one, I was injured, but I ran the race to qualify. You know, it was in Seville in 99 that qualified me for the Sydney Olympics. So it was it was worth doing it. I still first Australian finished about 23rd or something in the race. So I have an unbelievable record for consistency over a long period of time. And I've never not finished a race that I started. Any race from, from Tiddlywinks at, you know, downtown to, to all the marathons that I ran. So I'm proud that my training allowed me to be unbelievably consistent. Yeah. And there is there is some value in that. You know, you might say that by training in a different, more spe- specific way where I periodized or I did these longer, faster sessions, I may have got some better results, but I have absolutely no doubt that I would not have been as consistent over my, you know, I, I was at in the top of the tree in the world for 15 years till I retired. I was still pretty good for two or three years after that. You know, I went to world cross country and finished 30th. I think in when, in after I'd retired in 2004, I think so four years after retiring. So I had a 20 year career where I was at the top of the tree and that consistency was built because of the way I trained. That's a fact. Yeah. I'm yeah, I'm humbled just to even be talking to you when I like when you list those times off, I'm like, geez, you were just a beast. Um and, and it's sort of hard to wrap wrap your head around as a fan of, you know, Australian distance running at the moment because if we had a runner that ran sub two ten, like say someone ran two oh nine flat and came whatever, tenth at the Olympics now, we would be like, Holy shit, that's a great performance. But you like you, for example, you know, one com games, you know, bronze at world champs. You, like you had so many, you know, silver and bronzes over your careers in 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 big races. Like you were just doing it three, four times a year, all year for for ten years. It's um, it's sort of hard to wrap wrap my head around. Yeah, no, you know, I started race, Jack. I started, you know, I was running, you know, when I started London marathons and Tokyo marathons, Berlin, you know, all those races. I ran, I expected to win. Yeah. You know, I was in the lead pack. Everyone says, oh, you know, um, people, oh, you know, you, it was hot. So they started out conservative and ran through the field. And I never did that. I was always up front because I was going to win the race. Yeah. So, you know, I just had a mindset. I, I went to, we're at the movies um, last night. People still go to the movies. Uh, and I and Olivia went anyway. <laughs> we went, we watched um, the new Kingsman movie, which oh, is a prequel. Great. We like the Kingsman. And Love it. It's a prequel. But there was a scene there. Once, but it's not a spoiler, I don't think, but they're out, um, they're in Buckingham Palace and they were looking out um, sort of the last 
300 metres of a London marathon event where we finish, where you finish down the mall. Oh. And, you know, they had that seed. And I'm, I'm sitting in my seat thinking, oh, damn, that's where I finished second yeah. twice in the London marathon by three seconds. God, if only I'd just been able to get over, you know, over Saron or, or over Wakahoo, you know, I would have um, been a London marathon um, winner rather than being second twice by three seconds, once down the mall and once over uh, Westminster Bridge, but you know, they're, the that's bridge, the competitive yeah. person I am because I'm disappointed. I finished second twice at London Marathon. If we had someone that finished second at London Marathon now, we'd be, you know, we'd be having a ticker tape parade down the down the main street of Ballarat. But literally, you know, yeah. that was where I was and what I did. Yeah, I um, uh, I yeah, I've um, I I sort of when I first became really involved in distance running in Ballarat, I you know obviously read your book um, and. And have that like a. I don't have many books. I don't know many books, but but in the long run, your book is one of the few on my bookshelf. And and you know was shown photos of, for example, that I've that one of my all time favorite photos is a photo of you uh, on the bridge um, at, at the that London Marathon with. Um, I'm pretty sure there was three of you, and I don't remember their names. Obviously, I was I was too young, but with two other fellas, and and you sort of had like a sprint finish in the marathon and. I like I could just I just I wish I had been there for for your career like I wish I had been you know an 18 20 year old when you were you were at your peak because geez you produced some exciting um finishes and races by the way you did race you and, and that's that's sort of why um hearing you say that that when you were in when you were on the start line of a race like you were there to win and you put yourself in the position to win and there's all these iconic photos and and that sort of thing to prove that that's true yeah and we're a different era you know I'm not big noting myself you know the the African dominance wasn't quite as strong then and you know I had great rivalry with Douglas Wakahuri but they were different times and you know we were that you know that day's a classic you know you, there was Douglas Wakahuri from Kenya, Ahmed Saleh from Djibouti and Steve Monigetti from from Australia so you know that, <laughs> from the, the combination from Ballarat <laughs> and uh, I, I think people you know still tell that story I remember seeing the results and um, you know first place Douglas Wakahuri, Kenya Third place, Ahmed Saleh from Djibouti. Fourth place, you know, um, oh, I think it was an English guy, someone, and sort of went down through, you know, Spain. Anyway, second place, Steve Monaghetti, Ballarat YCW. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> I'm not sure why I was wearing my Ballarat YCW singlet that day, but um, did have the Nike swoosh on it, but it worked out pretty well. But yeah. uh, it was just a funny story. And, that, you know, that's me, you know, back to my roots, keeping it pretty simple and, you know, I think there's a lot of things that can go wrong in a in a distance race and in a marathon race, and I used to simplify it as much as I could. And there's something pretty simple. Obviously, I you know I'd raced well in my YCW singlet, and why would you change if you didn't chafe and it didn't bother you? Well, that's one thing you can keep. You know, you've got control of, so keep it. There'll be a lot of things in a marathon that you can't control, but that's one that I could. So I, I did the right thing there. You know, just things like that. Just simple things. I'm a pretty simple man, and I think we overcomplicate things. And you know, back then, like you say, people were really paying attention. You know, it was the middle of the night. You know, the nine-hour time difference. People were waking up in the middle of the night watching races because we didn't have social media. We didn't. You couldn't live stream or you couldn't track a runner. You know, you had to you had to just wait for the result to come through. And it was different times and. I still have people now saying, oh, you know, you owe me because, you know, I got up in the middle of the night watching you run and stuff like that. But just great stories and great times. And I love reminiscing about all of those times, but I also understand that things have moved on. It's a different era now, but 
as I say, I still think, you know, there's lessons to be learned and we should um, make sure we acknowledge, you know, talk about my book and I acknowledge Pete Howley who wrote that book, who was my physiotherapist, who, you know, you look at sports science now and you think about how many people have physios and doctors and sports scientists traveling with them. And back then it was unusual. And for me to take Peter to things like the London Marathon and the Olympics was really important because he was such a significant part of keeping me on, keeping me able to train at the level that I did. So it was vital that I had him there for those most important moments when I was at an Olympic Games or a major championship. Yeah. If I was you, I just, I would never want to, like I would always live in the past if I was youth. Like so I would, be, I'd be telling those stories every day to everyone who would listen. <laughs> I, um, yeah, well, yeah. And, you know, and the long runs. We've got plenty of time. We go on a few long runs, and you know, we we do um, we get. You know, I don't, I don't. Obviously, it's you know, it's a different world, and you know, I don't want, I don't press my my beliefs on a lot of the the people that we run with. But if people ask, I'm happy to share some stories. And you know, that's the thing. I think Jack, and we can talk about training. We can talk about you know, my mindset and all that sort of stuff. But what, what I love talking about is the stories and the experiences and the friendships that I've made. You know, Julian Payne is coming up next week because he's riding the road nationals. And Sean Quilty was here the other day. You know, I speak to Troopy regularly from Boulder. That You know, the, the friendships that I made and have been able to continue to make. Douglas Wakahuri on socials, you know, stuff like that. It's um, It's those experiences and the friendships that I love and, we can tell stories, you know, till the cows come home because I've got a few over my career and it's lovely to be still you know, making stories even to this day by staying involved as I have. Hey, you talk about the, the, like the, good, the, good, the good friendships you've made and, and that sort of thing, but something I've never actually heard you talk about um, is who was your biggest rival and, and was that person the person that you didn't like the most or, or were they different? Was there people that you ran against who you just hated and if you if they beat you, you would just it would just get you? Um, and and yeah, who was just who would you regard as as over your career your number one rival? Well, certainly my nemesis was Douglas Worker, I mean beat me in everything. And he he was pretty good and he wouldn't even remember racing against me because of sort of I was down the track a bit. But, you know, you talk about um, you talk about the 87 World Championships. So it was my second marathon, I finished fourth at the Worlds. He won. Um, the 88 Olympics, I was fifth and he was um, second, I think second or third. Then the um, 89 London Marathon, he beat me. I was second. And uh, as, I, as we mentioned earlier, Sala was third. The 90 Commonwealth Games, he won and I was second. So there was a, there's a pattern forming there. And um, I do remember um, going to the... Um, the Great North Run in um, England and just before the Berlin Marathon and, and Douglas and I were running and we had a pacemaker that day, Yoba Zondiecki, who um, was married to Lisa Zondiecki and Greg Bella and he, he held the world record for the 10K so he could run. And anyway, we, we took off. It was half marathon up at um, Newcastle upon Tyne and, and I remember thinking, well, you know, I'm going to finish second here because Douglas is going to probably beat me again, but I'm going to race as best as I can. And anyway, we took off and Douglas and um, Yobes just set the pace. He was running world record for 10K. I think he forgot it was a half marathon. Anyway, we were hanging on, hanging on, hanging on. And I remember getting to about 10K and um, we were flying and, and Douglas Wackery dropped off because the pace was so quick. And um, and I'm starting to think, geez, maybe Yobes is the one I've got to worry about. Anyway, he got tired and I ran on and um, ended up crossing the finish line running 60-34 and beating 
Douglas Wacker in. I still sort of think back to to this day. I think I don't know if I did beat Douglas. I think I just hung on to Yobis long enough that <laughs> he beat Douglas, and I was just the benefactor of it. But um, that was my first significant victory over Douglas Wakahuri and um, and then the great moment and this is what you talk about friendships and people probably would never hear this story but at Barcelona you know I was one of the favourites and as you know I finished in 48th and had a shocker and anyway I was running along in the main pack and I started getting a bit tired and Deke came past me and had me on the back and said you know see the finish line hang in there mate and I said thanks because he's a great guy and then Douglas Wakahuri came past and rather than run past me he ran with me. He said, you know, it's the Olympic Games. You're my friend. I'm going to help you to get to the finish line. And what a lovely thing to do. And anyway, I was getting a bit tired. I said to him, no, you, off you go, you go. And um, so he ran off and I struggled into the finish. And um, haven't seen Douglas work here since. Oh, yeah. anyway. No, I have. It's a great story. But he's, uh, and just the, the fact that he would sacrifice his own result at the Olympic Games to help a mate get to the finish line yeah. you know that's the types of friendships you know and he's a he's a kenyan you know studied zen buddhism in japan and you know i'm i'm a kid from downtown ballarat we would <laughs> never cross paths never have met each other and yet we've got a friendship that will last forever yeah. because of our running and crossing paths in running and that's what that's what sport does for you you have friendships that are lifelong friendships that um you know would never have happened had i not been involved yeah how good's that Crazy story. Um, hey, what what I've actually I don't know if I've ever really heard you talk about this. I what went wrong that day? Why did you have such a <laughs> for you like that's a, for, for some people that's a pretty good performance. For you, that is a shocking performance because you had such a high standard. Was it was it fueling? Did something go wrong in your training? What was it? Just did you just go a little bit hard too early on the day? Well, what happened? What we think happened was I, I I had ran well in in hot weather and so we what we we did was I was actually the first person into Barcelona so about a, a month before we we hired a house just over the hill from Barcelona at a place called San Cugat and we purposefully didn't get any air conditioning in the in the house that we had so that I could acclimatize you know so I was running during the day in full track suits and sweating up and then of a night. You know, we, I was sleeping and I was just unsettled in my sleeping because it was so hot in the room. But I'm thinking, how good is this? I'm acclimatising, I'm acclimatising. All that was doing was getting me so depleted and dehydrated. Then uh, we used to do this carbohydrate depletion diet. So for the first half of the week, you wouldn't eat any carbohydrates. And then the second half, you'd load it up. And that was a way of just increasing your glycogen levels in your body. They don't, no one does it anymore. Um, but back then it was a popular uh, diet to use leading into a marathon. But what happened for me, I was already really badly dehydrated. So when we started that depletion, all that did was deplete me even more. And we got to about the Wednesday, I'd lost about three kilos. I was down to about 57 kilos. And I think there's a photo, Pete Howell's got a photo in the book where I look like I'm really malnourished and really yeah. thin. And um, so I just got so badly depleted. Then when we switched and I started eating carbohydrates for that last sort of three or four days leading in the marathon, it was too late. My body had closed down and I didn't absorb any of the carbohydrates. So I started that race thinking I was going to win a medal, and but my body was really depleted, low on glycogen, and I got halfway and I ran out of glycogen, hit the wall and shuffled to the finish. So 
we learned from that. That's the thing. And that was the result. So we overcompensated for the heat in that situation. And after that, Jack, I came home and did a lot of research into heat training and subsequently then just trained normally, used the heat chamber out at Ballarat just for a little bit of exposure. And I rode on a stationary bike in the heat chamber out there. And my results in 95 at the Worlds, 96 at Atlanta, and then 97 in Athens proved that that was the right training system for hot weather preparation for races that, that served me really well. So we learned from that. So Barcelona was was a bad result. It actually allowed me to then become probably a better marathon runner and, and have that result at Athens that I otherwise wouldn't have had. And talk to me a little bit about this this carb, carbohydrate depletion and and then um, and then like a, a carbohydrate loading after that because mm-hmm. um, finally that that's not like I mean you talk about it like it was a really old um, way of thinking but when I was in going through school like we still learn about that to you know get tested on ex, on ex, on in exams like that's really only a last five to ten years thing that that that's really gone away and. Can you walk me through like when it started? Like, did it start on Monday? If the race, if the race was on Saturday, or how did it? How like what? How specifically did did that um, process work? Oh, it was very specific. So the race would, was on the Sunday, so Olympic marathon Sunday morning traditionally, and so on the Sunday previous, we do our long run as everyone does Sunday long run around the world, and from that day so what the theory was that we that long run would deplete your glycogen stores and then you wouldn't replenish those glycogen stores until Wednesday lunchtime so you'd have sort of the after that long run Sunday Monday Tuesday and Wednesday morning where all you would eat would be um, um, non-carbohydrate so you wouldn't have pasta bread um, and you get, you know, you just eat protein and meat and fish, and it was gee, you would get so tired you couldn't get out of bed, and I could hardly go for a run. And what that did, apparently, was your body realised it wasn't getting glycogen supplied or carbohydrates supplied, so it raised its own levels of glycogen. So you've got glycogen in your system, and it released it. So it said, oh shit, we've got no glycogen, we better release some of our own. So then. By Wednesday afternoon, that was long enough, so you switched over to um, starting to eat carbohydrates again. So you're putting your own glycogen in, and what the theory was that you had a high natural source because you depleted for a few days, and then by adding all this artificial carbohydrate on extra glycogen, you had sort of a super supply or you'd maximise your glycogen levels when you hit the start line on the Sunday morning. That's the theory, and obviously glycogen's what you need so you don't hit the wall. You hopefully, you don't run out of glycogen. Your training is efficient and allows you to use your glycogen sparingly and you get through the race not hitting the wall. So that was the theory. But people now think, Jack, that, and especially with this new um, Sunday run of you know running 35K and doing 15K or something of it at race pace, we're already really depleted. So you don't need to deplete anymore because marathon runners are probably spend half their life depleted so the theory is now that it's dangerous to deplete anymore because you get in that state where i was in barcelona where you're so depleted your body gives up doesn't release its natural glycogen and you just never recover so that's why people have gone away from it and it's so important you know you see runners now i used to finish a long run and i just sit at home and you know have a cup have a cup of coffee or maybe a bit of brekkie but now you know athletes are very aware of getting um, electrolytes back on board and maybe having a you know chocolate milkshake to get some um, 
protein and, and um, carbohydrates back on board. So they're a lot more aware now. I used to just sit around and do nothing. I didn't care. So I was probably depleted most of my life. So so that's the theory in a nutshell. That And it was used sort of through the 70s and, and 80s. And um, Chris Wardlaw was a big um, proponent of it. Deke, so Paco Hesse and all that pack, they all did it uh, as well. So it was very accepted. But then in the 90s, they moved away from it and it's not used by many people now. I think, I think maybe Lisa... Waitman and Dick Telford's group. So Michael Shelley might still use it to some minor degree, but um, otherwise I don't know many people use it anymore. And and during the race, because obviously it's like sports nutrition is such a massive thing now and everyone from the first time marathoner to, to you know, um, Kipchoge are really um, – I guess specific about what they what they take on during the race. How did that work for you during your career? Did you what sort of products were you using? Um, were you really anal about it, or was it were you a bit sort of blasé about what you took on during during the course of a marathon? I'm still blasé. And Jack, if you train, if you've trained and prepared properly, you know that's their supplementary thing. So you know, I always think if I needed a drink at 40k. I wasn't having a good day. So, you know, I normally skip the 40K drink stage. We didn't have gels back in the, in the 80s and 90s when I was running. So we had eight drink stations. So every 5K we had a drink station and um, we'd have our um, personalised drinks on those tables. And I initially I had a thing called Polycoast because there wasn't any sports drinks and that was a, a product that Chris Wardlaw got me onto from you could buy it at Chems. It was a baby formula. And then they invented Gatorade and... I used Gatorade and then um, Powerade came along and I used Powerade at the end of my career. So I basically had just those sports drinks and there'd be, you know, I'd have a drink bottle or a sauce bottle with about 200 mils in. I'd probably drink about 150 mils at best. Um, obviously in the warmer marathons, you'd try and get that fluid in, but generally I wasn't too anal about it. And I can tell you, honestly, I'd, after Barcelona, I got a bit scared of... Um, you know, taking um, drinks on board. And in Tokyo Marathon, where I won in 1994, it was freezing cold. There was ice on the road. And I can tell you honestly, that whole marathon, I took one drink at, I'm not sure, about 30K, I think it was. I took a sip, threw the rest of it over my head. It was water. That was the only fluid I had for the whole race. Oh, that is crazy. Well, I still ran, ran 208. 50 or something and one and um you know I, I didn't need it i was prepared well it was cold i wasn't sweating up you know it wasn't like i was running three minute cars i was running whatever we whatever that is 305s or something so i was efficient i was trained i was in good condition it was cold weather yeah. so i didn't need to take the fluids on my glycogen levels were were fine my you know electrolytes were all up i wasn't sweating wasn't losing um magnesium or potassium through my sweat so i was in great shape if you're in great shape all that other stuff, you know, is unnecessary. Now, I'm not saying to people don't drink. And for a lot of people listening, you know, they, they're out there for three, four, five, six hours. Obviously, it's an endurance event. And you really do need to drink and keep your nutrition up. But I was only out there for two hours. I was highly trained. You know, my body was a, an efficient running machine. So it didn't need to have um, any of that supplementary stuff in, in an event where it was pretty cold and I was in good shape. This is this is like an overwhelming feeling I get every time I talk to you is that we overcomplicate things now. Like everything you say is so simple. Yeah, well, it's marketing. Yeah. 
You know, it's all it's all about product. You know, GPS. I didn't have GPS, and you know, I love telling the stories. You know, that hill course. Uh, you know, I, I say I ran two hundred k's a week. That hill course, I called it seven k on Saturday morning. Well, GPS has now told me it's it's about six point four. Yeah. So out of those, I was probably running about 170k a week, even though I'm telling you I ran 200. <laughs> you know what, Jack? At the end of the day, I can tell you, I can tell you, I sat under a tree for 10 hours a week. My race results are fact. Yep. You can look up the results. I don't tell any lies. All of my results are there for everyone to see. My results stand up. It doesn't matter what training I did because it worked because my race results are fact and, and they're historical markers to say that whatever I did, it worked well. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, well put. I, I have nothing to add to that. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's spot on, isn't it? Um, well, you haven't got anything to add because it's fact. No one can argue. Unfortunately, yeah. I come from a position of power and whilst, you know, it sounds <laughs> like I'm being arrogant and, and smart about it, it, it's fact. You know, my nah. race results are, uh, you know, pretty good. We haven't even spoken about, you know, probably my best result ever was my my World Cross Country, you know, when I finished fourth at World Cross Country and even sixth in um, Boston. So I love my cross country. And, you know, those race results are built on I'm a cross country run. I grew up on cross country. It's what I love. It's where I, you know, it's where my DNA should be spread. If, if it could ever be spread, it's on, you know, it's on a cross country course, um, you know, around Ballarat or Bunder or somewhere because, um, you know, that's what I grew up on. And that's the environment that I feel most comfortable in. And, um, you know, that's that's the race that if you gave me one race, give me a, a 30K, maybe or 21K, half marathon cross-country race over some rolling terrain with some mud and slush and um, some tough hills, then that's, I'm in my element. That's me to a T. Yeah. I've heard you say similar things like that before about how, like, um, Jack, I wasn't actually that good at the marathon. I was a cross-country runner. And, and you really pride yourself on your ability to run well over hard courses and and uh, it always gives me a bit of pride because I know that's the Ballarat in you, and I I, I love Ballarat, the, the place we live, and 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 you just yeah, like we've already talked about on the episode, you're a you're a hard bastard who who runs over hard hard bastard loops in Ballarat, and uh, so when you say stuff like that, it it always you know brings a bit of a smile to my face. Yeah, and it's the environment as well. You know, we talk about Ballarat, but it's the people here and it's the environment that have bred that and built that and. We should keep that, and I'm proud of that. And um, you know, I'll be disappointed if it drops away. You know, the club running here is pretty strong. The competitive stuff, but I want people to be hard. You know, Stewie was here. We probably taught Stewie to Stewie McSwain to be hard. You know, mm. and and he's he's benefited from that. And it might have been not been when he was running at his best, but I'm sure there's some um, part of his um, success now was built on him spending time here in Ballarat. And you know, Moose is a great example. Julian, you know, came to Ballarat. A, 220 marathon runner and you know he's 214 marathon runner and been to the worlds and and i don't think i think he'd even acknowledge that that wouldn't have happened had he not spent time here yeah it is crazy the amount of like world-class australian distance runners that have come through this one little town in country victoria isn't it it is and long may it long may it continue Hey, uh, Mona, I want to change tack here a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and if you don't want to talk about this, just tell me and, and, and I'll get rid of it. But it's, it's a question I have to ask. Um, during your time when you were running, you know, obviously like doping was a massive thing. And knowing you the way I do, you were a clean athlete and, and just an absolute freak. But there would, would have without question have been, you know, people you competed against who weren't clean. Um, 
and and I've never sort of heard you talk about that. But do, did you ever think about that? And do you ever think about that? And and um, or, or was that just something that was never on your mind? No, thanks for asking, Jack. That's fine. I, I don't have a problem with it. I I don't mention it because I don't want to glorify it. And it's something, to be perfectly honest, it's something I'm a bit ignorant about because I've never been in that environment, never touched drugs, never would, never condone it. So I don't try to talk a lot about it because there's enough said about it and I don't I don't want it to dominate conversations. I want, you know, friendships, experiences, tough running and training to dominate our conversations. But, you know, at the time, I can honestly say as a racing international marathon runner or distance runner, I never thought about drugs and other athletes that I was competing against being on drugs. People talked about it, but I just, I, they talked about it more in other events, in sprinting and, and some field games and things like that, but, but we never spoke about it in distance running. And then as I've retired, you know, retrospectively, people are looking back and getting, saying, oh, you know, there's no doubt then, you know, those people you're running against were, were on EPO. Or, and I never, ever thought about it at the time. It never affected my racing. And we can have a conversation about it now. And we can acknowledge if people come out and admit they were, then I acknowledge that but it's not something that I ever lost sleep over. And I can tell you honestly that if someone beat me who was cheating or doing something illegal, then that's on their conscience. And I don't change my position in the race. So if I finish fifth and the first four people ahead of me are found subsequently to be doing drugs, I don't move up to first, Jack. I stay fifth. We just don't acknowledge first, second, third, and fourth. And I'm really happy with that because on the day I crossed the finish line and I was fifth and I was proud of my performance and I live and die by that. And I, I'm not I'm not going to um, make excuses for that or want to be pushed up a few spots. I was delighted that on that day I did the best I possibly could. I battled against the elements, the course, the opposition, and the result says I'm fifth and fifth is where I will stay. You know, and then I go to bed, obviously I sleep, you know, I put my head on the pillow knowing that I've done everything um, um, legally, you know, without needing to have any other, any other um, influences on my body, but my legs, my lungs and my um, head, that's what's got me to where I am. It's a pretty simple sport running. To be honest, you don't even need, well, you know, technically you could run naked as long as you've got a pair of shoes on or barefoot. You know, you don't need anything, to be honest. It's just, it's the purest of all sports because, you know, you just, I think of the deputies. I think of where I ran in Athens in 1997. You know, we started at the town of Marathon, basically ran along the course effectively that the deputies did, the course they did in 1896 when they started the modern Olympics. And, you know, it wasn't much different between them and we got a bit of shoe technology i don't know what else we have a few drinks along the way i think they were drinking whiskey we were drinking water (laughs) other than that it was pretty similar to be honest so you know i love the purity of the sport it's a pretty basic sport you can talk about drugs all you like or you can just talk about it's a pure sport simple just get out and run you train you reap the rewards of the training that you can get into your body and it's almost that challenge that's the that's the thing that i personally still find to this day is why I run at the levels that I do is trying to challenge myself to see how far I can push my body and my mind before I break down. And that's the challenge. And and I coach people and they get injured and I say, I'm not worried about you getting injured. I'm glad you're injured because at least I know you're pushing the boundaries and taking some risks. We could all jog around for fitness and run, you know, walk, run, 
a lap of Lake Wendouree three times a week. That's not going to test you and see how good a runner you could be. So I never apologise for, for um, you know, having a go and doing the best I possibly can with the ability I was born with. Yeah, not much more needs to be said on that. That was, uh, yeah, some great messages in there. But uh, the, the the mental image of you running around Lake Wendouree naked with a pair of alpha flies on is a pretty funny one. <laughs> it's not pretty. <laughs> I think that's the other thing, Jack. It's interesting. I'm not, I'm not the prettiest looking runner either and Deke wasn't he was you know Deke was pretty sort of um uh, bigger and tough he was and I've got to say I raced against Deke you talk about people who were tough to race against Jeez, he was tough he was a beast you know nowadays you don't get as many beasts so I think you probably get all those sort of efficient um runners who look so um relaxed and you know just run away from you effortlessly but um Deke was it was pretty tough but we weren't the best looking runners going around and you know you I don't think sometimes, you know, I think we all look at that, you know, having the perfect technique and being the bouncing around and being the best looking runner doesn't kind of work in distance running all that often. We just seem to get it done. I mean, Paula Ratcliffe wasn't the greatest looking runner either. And Kip Jogo is pretty good, I've got to say. But, you know, you don't have to be, you know, running 200Ks a week sort of, it makes your body become efficient. You don't need to sort of learn how to be efficient. I think the running... Um, if you do that amount of running, your body finds its level playing field of what's most efficient for it. So, you know, I always say to people, don't worry about sort of doing technique work and all that. If you tell your body it's going to be doing this for the next 10 years, it will suddenly work out a way to, to adapt to be the most efficient person it can be. It's pretty funny though, isn't it? And, and this happens a lot, I reckon, more and more um, is that people do look for shortcuts in everything, but particularly mm-hmm. when it comes to training and and diet and footwear and whatever it is, everyone's always looking for that 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 thing that's going to make them suddenly, you know, fifteen percent better. Um, and, and like to the point where people have jobs where you know someone who's going to run a, a four hour marathon will go to them to improve their running technique. Yeah. And yeah. hearing you say that, it's like, well, actually, that sounds a bit crazy. When when Mona puts it like that, it's it's very clearly not the thing that's going to you know make them thirty minutes faster, but but it's such a prevalent part of the sport now. It is. And that's, again, that's the industry that's built around uh, recreational running has become so popular. And it's kind of a good thing. I, you know, I've seen that grow over my um, over my time, which is fantastic. You see so many people out enjoying running. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, sometimes running is a very specific activity. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, when obviously if I'm coaching, they're looking for the secret, you know, they're expecting it, but it's just, Plain hard work, and if anything, I I think people sometimes when when you talk Jack about they look for the secret. I think often they also look for the alternative. They say, oh, you know, we're going to cross train, or we're going to do this, or we're going to do that, and it's almost no, just run. If you just run more, you'll get better. So don't worry about overcomplicating and trying to find other ways. Just run. Running is such a specific sport. I'm happy for you to do that as a supplementation it's like supplements they're called supplements because they supplement what you're already doing jack they don't replace they supplement and i think we sometimes think you know forget about supplements they're supplements if you need them but just do the basic work first then look to those other things that are going to complement the training that you're doing not replace yeah and it's sort of funny you you bring up these things that supplement running mona um 
and I know me and you in private have had these conversations about about footwear, um, obviously being something that we're both pretty passionate about. Um, and, and like, I, I really would like to take people inside those conversations that we've had about like how footwear has changed over time. And and I guess back when you were running and, and running, you know, 208 and stuff like that, at like times in Australia, sort of can't even really get close to it at the moment. You were just wearing shoes that were basically like as close to being barefoot as possible. Like they were almost nothing um, versus the, the modern day super shoe, which is, you know, supposed to save you so much time. Can you sort of talk to me about, about what your sort of philosophies around footwear were back in the day and then and then how it's changed over time? Sure, Jack. It was interesting. I mean, I've, I've seen the progression. It's great to see so many people out running. So that's, I suppose, the the benefit of, you know, this new technology that's um, been, it's worthwhile because so many people are buying um, running footwear now and different um, ranges that are out there. But, you know, I used to train in a heavy shoe because I, like to think that um, you know I was getting this sort of positive effect of then when I wore a lighter pair of shoes in races or in training sessions I got an uplift so that was the theory for me so you know I was wearing um, Pegasus or even structures and, and heavier shoes back in the day in training that also support my legs so when you're running the amount of mileage a week I was you know it was important to have a good supportive shoe so that worked really well so a heavy shoe in training then Normally, obviously, being sponsored by Nike for so long, I had a variety of shoes that I could use, and I would mix it up. So I might wear a, a you know, a, an elite shoe or um, something a little bit lighter during the week for some of my other runs. But when it got to race day, I actually wanted the lightest possible shoe I could get. So you know, I look back to um, the Niobe's that I wore in the '90s and the Air Mariahs, and then the Streaks, the early versions of the Streaks, and this um, streak LT streak. I think they're LT because they're lightweight. I think yeah. that was the, the LT bit. And I loved that. So it was almost as minimalistic as you could get because my theory was that the lighter shoe was you weren't, weren't carrying that weight over 42K. So obviously it was allowing you to run faster. But I do remember having a conversation with Troopy at the back end of his career. He was saying, what's happening, mate, is I'm getting to about 35K and my legs are so beaten up that I'm finding that these minimalistic shoes that you've been wearing and you tell me to wear, uh, I'm finding that I'm sort of not getting any bounce back and I'm finding it really um, hard, the road surface and my legs are just getting smashed. So he started to talk to me about wearing a shoe that had a bit more support just so you got less back-end damage to your body. So that was the first time I ever thought about anyone wearing anything but light shoes because I'm thinking, mate, I don't care how beat up my legs are. I've got six weeks, two months after a marathon to recover. I'm happy to beat my legs up 100% if it gets me to run a faster time. And that was my theory. And so that's how I ran. And it wasn't until most recently now that we've moved into shoes that are actually quite heavy, heavier than the heavier than the heaviest training shoe I ever wore, Jack. And people racing in these. Now that cannot, <laughs> in my mind, that doesn't make you run fast. And I remember... Um, you know, obviously I was just wearing streaks and training in them. Nike sent me the, you know, the, the, um, the 4% uh, next pen or vapor flies. Yeah. 4%. Yeah, I remember it. And I was thinking, Oh, I wore them in training. I was a bit, oh, they're a bit heavy and bit, I feel like I'm unstable. I'm up high and not really comfortable about these. Now I went to Gold Coast and ran the 10 K at Gold Coast. And I know Jack, I was in 33, 30 shape. I ran that race, felt pretty good held on at the back end. I think I ran 32, 40, 
something and um and I I finished crossed the finish line and I thought, wow, I cannot run that time. <laughs> Those shoes have helped me thirty seconds over ten K. So I have a theory it's about three seconds a K, which is about two minutes over a marathon, which is about right. If you look at Kip Choge, you know, I reckon he's sort of no, that's about the, the difference. A couple of minutes, it's probably benefiting people. So I'm a convert now. I train, you know, my fast sessions are in them. My races are all in them and they are heavier, but I run faster in them. So end of story. I cannot see how anyone could not be convinced into wearing them. And that's why we see in every race around the world now, um, people are wearing them and rightly so. And and it's great that they're benefiting from people running PBs. We're seeing such interest in distance running and all of it, all of that attention's become about because of, um, you know, Nike's new super shoes and I'm comfortable with that. You know, they're breaking my records and that sort of stuff, but that's fine. I, I don't mind. It's well, Someone's going to break them anyway. So if it's a good story and it involves Nike and it, it's people I know and respect and that's a good thing. I guess it's, you know, maybe controversial, but you, you probably should start telling people you're a 206 marathoner and it's just, you know, <laughs> yeah, the right. next percent adjusted time. Would have broken the world record. <laughs> I was only a minute and a half behind the world record. Yeah. But unfortunately, everyone else would have been wearing them too, Jack, so the world record wouldn't have been a bit quick. It's all relative. And that's what I say. People say to me, oh, you know, you were – because when I ran that 208.16 in Berlin, that was the fastest time in the world that year. And I think the 13th – I was either the 13th fastest – I think I was the 13th fastest person at the time. So but there'd be 13 a week now. And people say, well, you know, geez, you know, if you were running now, you know, you'd be a hack. You'd be just down the back. You know, you'd be finishing 30th in the Olympic marathon. And I go, no, I wouldn't. (laughs) I would be finishing – fifth in the Olympic marathon. I would be winning the Commonwealth Games marathon. I'd be finishing third at the world championships. And they go, how can you say that? Because in in my era, I ran what I had to run to finish third at the Worlds. And in this era now, I would do what I had to do to finish third in the Worlds. So that's that's how I, I take those historical runs. That's where I was at the time. That would be where I would be right now. And you just you just transfer it forward. So, you know, I don't I don't say I was a two eight runner in this world i was a 28 runner when the world record was 2648 or whatever it was and you know and that's that's fact as well so you know i i that's that's how i run and i'll, I'll stick with that that's my belief and i'll stick to it 100 percent. yeah anyone who says that just does not know what they're talking about um hey mona going back to to your training just a little bit mm-hmm. was there a patch was was there a patch where you just had like a block of training that was the best block you ever had and you you were like this is the fittest I'm ever going to be. Oh yeah, up at Falls Creek, I remember up at Falls Creek, and you know, we'd go to Falls Creek at over um, end of December and, and January. And you know, if you said to me right now, you've got to run the best race of your life in a month's time, I'd be up at Falls Creek in a shot. So you know, Kara McCann ran up there, Troopy, Craig. You know, a lot of people have come off Falls Creek. Just the, the altitude and the environment up there allowed me to get some training done that I couldn't do down here. And even being a full-time athlete down here in Ballarat, I, I couldn't quite, um, you know, put in the effort. And, you know, the, the being at altitude, the terrain up there made it difficult. But, geez, I did a block up there that was unbelievable. Um, you know, I was doing this speed on co run, which is tough in itself, about 25K. And I'd run, I ran off the end of there and ran down um, towards um, – um, Mount Beauty and got to the main road and ran back up the road to back to the village. I think that was about 
35 Ks up. That was my Wednesday morning run, you know, stuff and the quarters and, and the, I wasn't doing K reps. I was doing my fartlek up there and we, I'd get further out from the fartlek that we ever got. <clears throat> so I just put together a few weeks up there that were just unbelievable. And, um, you know, I think I almost broke down off it because I was just training at such a high level. I couldn't sustain it when I got back down here. And um, that was probably, for me, the best, couple of weeks or training block that I, I ever put together and um you know says volumes for what an environment and a positive environment can do for you but some you know I was running I think I was running 220 k's a week um some massive sessions and um just bearing everybody up there off off really high mileage so it was just a, a great time to and I just felt you know I've had a few times in my life Jack where I felt super strong almost almost superhuman. I was so strong, I became bulletproof. And it's almost arrogant to think that, you know, I could be training at that level and just thinking I could do more and, and my body was going to tolerate that because it had to be a breaking point. And sometimes I look back now and I think, how the hell did my body absorb the amount of training I did over 15 years with hardly any major injuries was quite incredible and you know breaking down every week here now and i think how that is you know it was it's like a was a past past person and a past being but i think i just had such a big base of training behind me that those little fast bits on the top end were so minimal compared to the big mountain that i'd already built over years and years and it's that i think you know if i was to leave you and the listeners with any sort of um, moral to the to the conversation we've had it's the it's the little incremental builds that eventually over years and years you build such a base that you become super strong and you know I'm coaching Brooke Williams at the moment and she's that's the stage she's at she's sending me notes saying she just feels unbelievably strong and it's such a powerful position to be in when when you get to a training point and you you're like that it it, it makes running just so powerful and, and so wonderful. Yeah, and, and on that, you trained with a lot of good guys, uh, and were you know you did a lot by yourself as well. From from what I'm what I'm aware, but you did train with a lot of good guys. Mm. Did you did you compete in training? And and did you when you were running with those good guys, were you sort of um, trying to break them inside training? Well, that's that's a that's an interesting question. I I always trained with people that I was better than, so I could kind of control the training and. I'd sort of tolerate them. If I wasn't feeling great, we'd all sort of run together in sessions. But then if I was feeling good, you know, I'd run with them for a little while and then I'd, I'd run away in the last bit of the session or the reps. But then I remember Gary Henry moved to Ballarat to train with me in the um, end of the 90s. He was trying to get to a Com Games or Olympics, I think. Sorry, the start of the 90s, end of the 80s. And um, and God, he was hard. And suddenly I had to, I had to think, oh, God, this guy's going to beat me in his training. You know, my family around, no, 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 that's not what happens. This has not been the rules. And so he sort of um, uh, helped me to just push my training a little bit and, and be sort of um, questioned in training, which I'd never been done before, which I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but it was a bit of a rude awakening for me. And just after that, Troopy moved to Ballarat and he definitely was sticking it to me. So he became so good at my training that he was better than me. You know, it was that theory of succession planning. He overtook me and, and he really, the, the, he benefited from the training, but so did I, because it took me to another level. So, you know, we're running 
you know, my fart leg in sort of 18, 20, 18, 30, most Tuesday nights and the quarters in sort of just over 14 minutes. As soon as Troopy turned up, it went to sort of 18 minutes or even quicker on a Tuesday night. And then the quarters got down into 13 minutes very regularly. So he took my training to another level and I benefited from it. And there's no doubt I won the bronze medal at the Kuala Lumpur Commonwealth Games 10K because I was training with Troopy in the 12 months leading up. Absolutely no doubt about it because he got me sharper and faster and able to deliver on the track that I beat him, unfortunately for him, but um, um, he definitely helped me. So that's I did have um, good runners around me and I attracted good runners, but I wouldn't say we were ever competitive in training, but we were certainly competitive in, in races. And, um, you know, Troopy and I, we had an unwritten rule, you know, we're best mates and we raced against each other a lot, but never did we compromise our running. So in a race, um, it was every man for themselves. And if I didn't win, I was the first person to hope it was Troopy and vice versa. But I can tell you, we never raced to allow each other to beat um, us. We were as competitive against each other as anybody. And um, that needs to be stated because I know there was one race without telling a story, but there was one race where um, a person suggested that I'd taken the lead and pushed the pace a bit so Troopy could come over top of us and win the race, as he did. But that was far from the reason I did, I did it, because I wanted to win, not because I wanted Troopy to win. So I wanted to make sure that stated here because um, I've never ran a race wanting anyone else to win but myself. So when that happens, right, so Troopy runs over the top of you and wins and mm-hmm. you, there's probably like a, a party that's happy for him, but there's obviously also a party that's like, fuck, I, like, oh, I wanted to win that. So you, you're, you're sort of angry. Yeah. And then someone accuses you of uh, letting him win. Do you, <laughs> do you allow yourself to be like, oh, yeah, I let him win, like just to make yourself feel better? Or are you just angry because you're like, fuck, I didn't let him win like I wanted to win? Yeah, no, no, we don't worry. It almost came to fisticuffs. It was a pretty serious conversation <laughs> afterwards, but Troopy's a pretty fiery ca- character and so was this person without naming names, but um, we resolved it in the end and we were saying, hey, that, I'm taking that as, a, as an affront that you would think that oh, I don't want to win that race. You don't know me very well. And that was what I think Troopy and I were surprised because we understood that we were as competitive against each other as anybody and for someone else to suddenly question that was kind of, we kind of going, I, what? No, no, no. That's not right. We, how could you think that? That is so far from the truth. And Trippy and I knew it, but this person didn't know it and believe it and started to publicly sort of um, ridicule and say, no, 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 mate, don't be doing that because I can tell you that is as far from the truth. So we eventually convinced him and he, he was fine about it. But um, yeah, it was interesting because we'd never, never even considered it because that's not how we we just grown up as competitive with each other as anybody. So it was unusual when it happened. Anyway, yeah. we got there in the end. Yeah, what a story. Um, hey, I, I, I just got um, like a couple more questions, Mona. Um, <laughs> I've always sort of like thought, you know that question, it's like if you could have five people over over for dinner at, at your house to, to have a conversation with them, who would it be? And uh, as a fan of sort of Australian distance running, like I've always thought, geez, it, like Mona would be a great person for that because no one tells stories better than Mona. So I um, – just on a bit of a selfish note, and we've already talked about Ballarat a lot, which is probably hard for people to relate to, but but if you haven't been to Ballarat, just picture, you know, a big country town with, with lots of dirt and, and hills and forests and, and, and mono running around them. Um, what loop, if you could if you could only run one loop through the, the forests of Ballarat for the rest of your life, for whatever reason, 
What what one would it be? Oh, there's no doubt that the um, Goldfields track, or there's a walking trail that's um, the Great Dividing Track. I don't know which. I think it's called the Goldfields Track now. But fortunately, I I did it with a couple of mates from Bendigo to to Ballarat, and we did it over three days, and it was 60k sort of blocks from um, Bendigo to Harcourt, Harcourt to Dalesford, and then Dalesford to Ballarat, and the bit coming back through. Um, uh, Creswick Forest on the other side of the um, Patilla Road. So for people won't know, but it's in a section of the Creswick State Forest that we don't get to run all that often. But it's a, some beautiful parts through there, some gullies, some single track, some hills and some rolling countries and a good quality Australian bush that's that's really nice. A couple of little pine tree sections, which is also soft underfoot and, and shaded over top of this as well. So... If I had any choice, that would be probably the one. And, and I reckon, Jack, and, and again, we don't want to picture this for our listeners, but I could probably run naked in there because I'm <laughs> highly unlikely to see anybody because it's out in the middle of nowhere. There are more people in the forest now than ever, but that would be as free and as um, as comfortable in an environment as I could be. So that'd be there'd be a, a 10K stretch that I could pick in there that would be pretty close to my heart. I love that section of that trail. I like. I bloody love it. it. You're right. It is a little bit more of a drive, so you don't you don't run it as much. And and I'm probably going to run it even 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 less now because I'm scared I'll run into you naked out there. Yeah. But, that's uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll run yeah. fast. I'll run fast quickly. Uh, good news. Uh, yeah, yeah. You don't want to get uh, stuck out there and, and tear a calf, though, do you? No, exactly. It's a long walk home, but it'd be a beautiful walk. Yeah. Hey. Uh, yeah. Like I said. Um, I, 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 I don't think anyone tells a story better than you and, and there's been plenty today and I can't thank you enough for coming on, Mono. It was, uh, this is just such an, an honour for me being, um, being a Ballarat boy and, and you being one of my, one of my idols. So, um, yeah, I, I've really loved this chat and, and, and can't thank you enough for coming on. No, I've enjoyed it, Jack. Thanks for letting me indulge. I love telling the story. It's reminiscing for me and, you know, it might sound like it's um, – it's um, their stories, but they were lived experiences, and I enjoy sharing them with with others. And hopefully, um, people out there listening have, have got some benefit out of a um, couple of little pearlers in there as well. Hopefully, too, Jack. Hey, uh, just just one last thing we, before we go, mm-hmm. and you, you've mentioned it a couple of times is is your fart leg, and it, it's the monofart leg, and obviously. Everyone who knows you or has listened to you talk knows what the monofartlek is, and mm. and even if they uh, even if they don't really know who you are, which is would be surprising, um, they've probably done the monofartlek if they're a runner. Um, now, there's a lot of sort of talk about that about that fartlek, and people do their own variations of it. But mm. can you just tell everyone listening uh, as a, as a note to finish on, what is the proper way to do a monofartlek? What is the monofartlek? How are you supposed to do it um, so that that it's just without question. It can't be. It can't be debated how it's how it's done properly. Sure, mate. So it's actually. I need to acknowledge Chris Wardlaw because we bumbled on it over the phone. He, he lived in Melbourne. Lives in Melbourne. I'm here in Ballarat. So we bumbled over it on the phone when he first started coaching me. So I've got to give him credit for for helping me devise it. But it's um, it's two by ninety seconds, four by sixty seconds, four by thirty seconds, four by fifteen seconds all followed by the same recovery as the rep you just did. So if you do a 90, you do a 90 recovery. And um, and that gets you to, if you, if you add it up, you get six minutes, 14 minutes, 18 minutes, and 20 minutes at the end of those separate, four separate blocks. 
and it adds up to 20 minutes. Now, the, the controversial bit is, and people say they do two by monophone, I don't care, you know, I don't care what you do, or you add some two minutes on at the front end, or you find, you know, need some longer stuff, start and finish. But as I say, off the, off the massive mileage block that I was doing, it's a fantastic session. And apparently it really helps push out your anaerobic threshold, which is the perfect training session. And um, so it worked well for me. But th- there's probably two versions of doing it. I used to do the floats pretty quick. and and I've actually done my fart lick around Lake Wendery, which is 6K in 17, 18 one night, which is, I don't know what it is, but it's sub three minute K. So so you can see my floats are not very slow. So I don't know what the differential between my reps and my recoveries were that day, but it couldn't have been very much because I, I mean, I couldn't be running quicker than 240K pace in the reps. So I must have been running about 255 or something in the recovery. So it's just on three minutes. So it's pretty fast. So you can do it. That was the way I did it most often because I think it simulated a race because you were sort of getting fatigued at the back end and the last couple of minutes are pretty hard. Then you get into 30s and you're a bit shorter, but you try and keep the intensity up. And then obviously the 15, some people just skip them. But I like to do them because they're really fast. And and my key was to make sure I started each 15-second rep with a, with a, a sprint or a surge. So there was a difference between the floats and the reps. So that's the way I did it. But a lot of other people I talk to, and if you're doing a more specific, faster workout, slow the recoveries down and do the reps faster. And I can tell you that's just as hard doing it that way because, gee, you get really fatigued in the reps and the, and the recoveries don't seem long enough, even though they're the same as the rep you just did. So there's a couple of ways of doing it, but either way you get really good benefit out of it. And, and I don't care what bastardized version you do of it because just doing a session will take you from being just a recreational runner to a, to a real runner. So anyone who's out there, don't feel bad about doing it because there's just an innate benefit in doing it, whatever form you, you choose to, to use in it. Love that. What a note to finish on, Mona, and, and thanks for sharing that story as well. No worries. Pleasure. Cheers, Jack. Awesome. Have a good day, Mona. Thanks, mate. You too. See you, Jack. <laughs>